The Blaze Radio Network. On Demand. 2017 is going to be a volatile economic year. We may see politicians throughout the world attempting to control central bank policies. Several renowned financial analysts have warned that political interference in central bank policies may mean our economic misses of inflation and growth targets. Gold is an international currency that can't be issued or controlled by governments. If you don't have the only hard currency that has outlasted every politician and every failed idea of governments for centuries, you need to speak to Goldline right now and learn how easy it is to add gold to your portfolio or IRA. Now is the time to diversify your financial portfolio by adding gold. Call 1-800-913-GOLD. Buying real gold is easy and fast at Goldline. And you're going to be happy that you finally made the call. 1-800-913-4653. Goldline also offers price protection against short-term market fluctuations on qualifying purchases. So buy with confidence. Read Goldline's important risk information and find out if buying gold is right for you. Call Goldline. 1-800-913-4653. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Well, thanks for being here. Happy week. Uh, happy Saturday. Happy Father's Day weekend as well. Uh, coming up today, got a bunch of emails last week or so. Uh, people asking for suggestions on graduation gifts, uh, some books, some books that would make good graduating gift, graduation gifts, either a high schooler going off to college or college grad going off into the real world. And I guess this would double as good Father's Day gifts. If you don't have one yet, uh, I, I got two book suggestions that I want to give coming up. You could run to Barnes and Noble and, and pick it up by tomorrow. So we'll talk about that coming up. Also, I've ignored the craziness at Evergreen State College. Have you have you been following this the last couple of weeks? I've ignored it for reasons I'll explain later. But it is the craziest university crazy story I've ever heard. And I, I do want to take a minute and make sure you're all up to speed on this. And, and we'll give you that rundown. Uh, what else we got? Oh, coming up in this hour, I want to talk about Shakespeare in the Park. I haven't seen it because I'm in San Diego, not in... New York City. But based on what we know about it, it makes me wonder if the people who are in the play ever read the original play. Right? It's supposed to be a modern take on Julius Caesar by Shakespeare. But it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to make Trump the role of Caesar. And anyone who would make Trump the role of Caesar I think that makes me think that you you don't you, you haven't read the play, <laughs> so it's just pretty odd. So we'll talk about that coming up in, in just a few minutes. But first, I want to start here. Uh, Tuesday or Wednesday was the 30th anniversary of Ronald Reagan's "Tear Down This Wall" speech. Do you know how that speech came about? Reagan didn't write it. It was written by a then 30 year old. Dartmouth and Oxford graduate. His name's Peter Robinson. He was the junior member of Reagan's speechwriting team. Peter Robinson. Now, a couple decades after that speech, Peter was talking to his daughter. His daughter was a high school senior at the time. And he thought he'd do a little experiment. And he quizzed her on major wars. Again, she's a high school senior. 
So he said, what about the Revolutionary War? And she's like, oh, pff, no problem. That's when we won our independence from the British. Okay, the Civil War. Ah, yeah, come on. Dad, Lincoln freed the slaves, reunited the country. World War One. Uh, Archduke Ferdinand, uh, there was an assassination, but uh, the Americans went over there and democracy won. World War II, easy. We beat Hitler and Japan. Great job, honey. Uh, what about the Cold War? He said she was very uncertain, very vague. They're not taught about the Cold War in American high schools. They don't know how Vietnam fit into it or Korea. They don't even know who Gorbachev was. And this is the, this, the daughter, uh, the 17, 18-year-old daughter of the guy who wrote the tear down this wall speech. And, and she doesn't even know about the Cold War. This, by the way, is all by design. Our educators can't talk about the Cold War because in the Cold War, we fought against communism. And communism, well, it may not have worked in practice, but they say it's good in theory. So college kids have no, or high schoolers have no proper background. They don't, they don't understand the context of tear, the tear down this wall speech. And if you don't know the context, then it sounds like this is an okay line. It's not, it's, there's, there's no gravity. There's no severity. There's no importance to it if you don't know the background. So here's how it worked. You got Reagan's speechwriter. Uh, well, let me quote from a political article about him. Writing speeches for Reagan, Robinson says, wasn't especially difficult. Reagan had penned most of his own speeches before becoming president, and he'd employed con- conversational language, the diction of ordinary Americans. When you wrote... Peter Robinson said, when you wrote, you could hear those wonderful pipes of his. And you knew whether something was right for him or not. On top of the fact that by the time he got to the office, you had two decades of Reagan's writings and recordings on every conceivable issue. You knew where he stood. About the Berlin speech, what instructions were given? None, Robinson said. He was simply thrown into the deep end. My guidance from senior staff on the speech was... Audience, about 10,000. Length, 20 to 25 minutes. Subject, foreign policy. Period. It was up to me to figure out what Reagan ought to say beyond that. Imagine giving those instructions. Holy, where do you even begin? Where do you end? So here's how it went down. He and a fellow speechwriter, they flew to Berlin. And they met with... The, the ranking American diplomat about what Reagan should say. And the diplomat was full of things that Reagan shouldn't say. That's it. And the embassy was very clear that they did not want any, in his words, commie bashing. Or in their words, no commie bashing. So he was totally a loss of what to do. What to do, what to say, and the speech was coming up. So he and the other speechwriter, they went out to a dinner party among Berliners. And they're there standing, standing around talking. And a woman comes up to him. Now, I don't know if she knew who he was or 
if she was anyone special or I we have no idea. But with a great passion, she jumped in the conversation and said, if this man Gorbachev is serious about Glasnost and Perestroika, he can prove it by coming here and getting rid of this wall. There it is. Peter Robinson said, boom. I put that in my notebook. I knew immediately that I had something. Because I knew Reagan would have responded to that woman's message. I had Reagan in my head. He would have loved that. Simple, dignified, but very powerful. How amazing is it that one of the most famous lines in human history, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This line that completely changed history. Delivered by a president, written by a speechwriter, who was just at a gathering when a woman, in passing again, maybe not even knowing who Peter Robinson was, or that he was Reagan's speechwriter, or that she, in what she was about to say next, would have a direct line to the president, and therefore to all of human history. That she just said something off the cuff. Maybe even if you talked to her today, she'd be like, oh, I don't remember saying it. That off-chance encounter is where... We get Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall. Isn't that amazing? What are the chances? Now, I want to play uh, that part here. I just want to play two minutes of this speech here. I want to play the build-up to it. Now, before he says, tear down this wall, he says something much less inspirational. Mr. Gorbachev, open up this gate which doesn't, doesn't quite have the same ring to it, right? Open up this gate versus tear down this wall. Isn't that amazing how those are so different? The reason he says open up this gate is because earlier in the speech, he references the Brandenburg Gate. He says pre- the, the president of uh, West Germany, the good side, uh, said the German question is open as long as the Brandenburg Gate is closed. And today I say, as long as the gate is closed, as long as this scar of a wall is permitted to stand, it is not the German question alone that remains open, but the question of freedom for all mankind. So that's why, so he, earlier he referenced the gate, and then that's why later he references the gate. He says, open up this gate. Uh, but that's not the line that does it. Sit back, enjoy uh, a little bit of Ronald Reagan 30 years ago this week. Yeah, do we have uh, 1536? We will have that when we get back. Oh, there's the tease. We got it? All right, let's do it here. And now, now the Soviets themselves may in a limited way be coming to understand the importance of freedom. We hear much from Moscow about a new policy of reform and openness. Some political prisoners have been released. Certain foreign news broadcasts are no longer being jammed. Some economic enterprises have been permitted to operate with greater freedom from state control. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state? Or are they token gestures intended to raise false hopes in the West or to strengthen the Soviet system without changing it. We welcome change and openness. 
for we believe that freedom and security go together, that the advance of human liberty, the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. There it is. 1-888-933-93. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Are you worried about your mom or dad living alone in their house? Hi, I'm Joan London. Listen, I know how difficult it is to find senior care for someone you love. That's why I recommend a free service called A Place for Mom. They are the nation's largest senior living referral service. Call A Place for Mom today. To receive free information on senior living communities in your area, call A Place for Mom at 1-800-803-6951. This is Mike Slater. It's Slater for Slater. So if I may draw a parallel between that speech 30 years ago this week and what's going on right now, how Reagan and, and, and the Western world won the Cold War uh, versus what we're doing now with Islamic extremism. We're not winning now because we haven't defined the enemy. Back then, uh, it was clear. It was obvious. Now, now, I think it's equally obvious today. Uh, and, and in very ways, in very many, in many ways, uh, Islamic extremism similar to the murderous regimes of of communism. There's differences, of course, but it's all within the um, under the umbrella of the same broken collectivist ideology. Different strains of the same disease. But keep in mind, it was one year ago this week as well when a terrorist killed 49 people in that nightclub in Orlando. And on the one year anniversary, the headline of the Orlando Sentinel said. Pulse gunman's motive. Plenty of theories, but few answers. (laughs) NBC. Orlando's Latino community remembers and rebuilds one year after shooting. Latino community? I mean, it was a gay club, but I guess it was Latin night, so they're, they're highlighting the Latino community? CBS services will mark one year since Pulse nightclub shooting cnn angels join vigil for 49 pulse victims this one's the worst washington post a year ago 49 people died at pulse nightclub 
Today, Orlando remembers. 49 people, they died. It could have been a pyrotechnic explosion. It could have been some rotten meat that they used to make meatball appetizers. They passed through, right? I mean, it could have been carbon monoxide poisoning, just, but they've died. 49 people died. The building collapsed. Just 49 people died. <laughs> Unbelievable. So Jim Tratcher, he, he wrote a headline, an appropriate headline, because you will see no headline like this on any newspaper in the entire world. But he wrote one year ago, Omar Mateen murdered 49 people at the Pulse nightclub in the name of Islam. Pulse gunman's motives. Plenty of theories, but few answers. Really? Again, I think that Washington Post headline's the worst. As opposed to some guy murdered 49 people. It's 49 people died. (laughs) I heard someone say, 49 people gave their lives. One year ago, 49 people gave their lives in an attack. It's like, what? As if they voluntarily sacrificed themselves. Nothing will change. The, the, the willful ignorance, and it's willful, the willful ignorance is staggering. And thank goodness that we did not do this 30 years ago during the Cold War. Reagan did not operate in this manner. Otherwise, it'd be Mr. Gorbachev. This wall's fine. Everything's good. What wall? I don't even see a wall. <coughs> now, those are just newspaper headlines. This is even more insidious. You'll remember Loretta Lynch, who was the uh, attorney general under Barack Obama. She released a partial transcript of the 911 call that Omar Mateen made from inside the nightclub, right? So he's inside the nightclub killing people. He calls 911. So I'm, I'm going to read from this transcript as released by Loretta Lynch, as released by the federal government, by the Department of Justice, just a couple of days after the terrorist attack. Mateen, I pledge allegiance to omitted. May God protect him. In Arabic, on behalf of omitted. Do you remember this happening? This is a year ago. And as soon as the Department of Justice released that, everyone with two brain cells looked at that and said, whoa, 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 whoa. What? Omitted? We all know what you're omitting. What are you doing? So what were they omitting? What he really said was, I pledge allegiance to Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who is the leader of ISIS, who, by the way, yesterday, Russia announced that they think they killed and an airstrike, but he's the leader of ISIS. So I pledge allegiance to the leader of ISIS. May Allah protect him on behalf of the Islamic State. So they they omitted Baghdadi and Islamic State. But I think maybe even worse than that is they changed may Allah protect him to may God protect him and then in brackets in Arabic. So they translated Allah to God. Unbelievable. And they did that because we can't say Allah. You got to get Allah out of there. Put God in there. Amazing. (laughs) It's, uh, It's sad because 
listen, one, one speech can't change everything. It's not like Reagan gave a speech and then magically everything was better. There was obviously a lot of work behind the scenes. A lot of work for years prior. But that speech 30 years ago this week reflected the posture that leadership in this country had, which reflected the actions of identifying the enemy and standing up to it with truth, with the goal of we win, you lose. Because that's how you win. It's the only way to win is to identify the enemy. We have an enemy today. We refuse to identify it, which is why they continue to kill people. And we're going to continue to look the other way every single time, no matter where it happens, Manchester, London Bridge, down wherever you live, it doesn't matter. It's going to keep happening because heaven forbid anyone dare say that omitted is an omitted. And one day, if we don't stand up and speak the truth, then we'll all be omitted. So wake up, identify the enemy, which of course is omitted. And finally, we can all omit it. See how worthless that is? When you talk like that, when you communicate like that? That's what our federal government was doing. We'll see how that changes. Coming up next, we'll talk about Shakespeare in the Park and, and why I think the people in the play never read the actual play. Because if, if you know the play, it seems very odd that they would replace Caesar with Trump. We'll explain that next. Mike Slater, show the plays radio network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. Slater Crusader. So I'll, uh, I'll take the bait here and we'll talk about the Julius Caesar play at Shakespeare in the Park in New York City in Central Park. We'll talk about this. Uh, you, you, you're all up to speed, right? The controversy because Caesar in this reimagined modern version is played uh, or, or represented by Donald Trump and he gets stabbed, obviously, and all the obvious problems with you know, killing the sitting president every night. You would think that would be problematic. In our world of microaggressions, this seems to me to be an actual aggression. But alas. Um, here's the point I want to make. And I'll be honest, of course, I haven't seen the play. I live in San Diego, it plays in New York City. I haven't seen it. I've only seen on TV what you've seen, right? The scene where they stab Trump over and over again. I mean, and I, that's important because it's not just one dramatic stab and he's dead. It's a full-on attack scene. So haven't seen the play. But the fact that they replaced Caesar with Donald Trump makes me think that they haven't read the original play. And I really think this whole controversy, it's one of those scenarios, and this happens every, every so often, usually when there's something going on in the Middle East or Israel, Palestine, where everyone just pretends like they know what's going on, but no one knows what's going on, <laughs> right? The fact that we're talking about Shakespeare's Julius Caesar as if we've all read it, <laughs> as if, oh, yeah. Uh, of course I read that. It's like, uh, 
like we've all seen the movie Titanic or something. Like, oh yeah, Titanic. Yeah, sure. Now I've, I've definitely seen that. Yeah, yeah. We've all read Julius Shakespeare or we, we've all read uh, Julius Caesar by Shakespeare. Everyone's read that. Yeah, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe one percent of the population have ever read Julius Caesar by Shakespeare. Maybe one percent. The only time most people would read it would be in high school. And you read a Shakespeare play, and it's probably not going to be Julius Caesar. It's going to be something else. But even if it is Julius Caesar, who actually reads it in high school? And then other people who actually read it, how many people remember it? Come on. But everyone in this whole controversy is pretending like, oh, yeah, I read it five times a year. I can quote it from memory. No problem. Please. I want to play a scene uh, coming up later if we can. Maybe we'll do it in the next segment. Of... Uh, from from the play, it's performed by Damian Lewis. It's two minutes. It's really good. And uh, lest we all have flashbacks to our uh, ninth grade English class and fall asleep in the hundred and twenty seconds of audio that I want to play, uh, I want to explain quickly what's going on here. And as I'm saying this, I'm realizing, brother, that I never sent it to you. Uh, let me send it to you right now. All right, here we go. See if you can pull this up, my man. I'll get it ready here. Boom, sent. Um, So here's what's going on. Uh, You got Brutus and a handful of other conspirators. They stab and kill Caesar. He's the, 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 the top dog. Now this is when Caesar says, Et tu, Brute! You too, you too, Brutus, right? Like, what he's saying is, Oh, Even you, Brutus, my friend, even you were a part of this plan to kill me. Come on. And then Caesar says, then fall, Caesar, meaning, God, geez, even even my best friend conspires to kill me. If that's true, then what's the point of living? I might as well just die. So Brutus and these conspirators, they kill Caesar. Great victory for Rome. That's how they pitch it. They pitch it as this great victory for Rome. We've killed the tyrant. And Caesar, or excuse me, uh, Brutus gives this grand speech to the people of Rome. And the people of Rome love him. Right? We love Brutus. He killed the tyrant. Oh, Caesar, he was an awful man. Brutus, that's what Brutus says. He was, you people don't even know how bad he was. And Brutus says that he was ambitious. Very dangerous. And Brutus had to stop Caesar's ambition for the sake of the people of Rome. And the people of Rome think that that's just great. And they praise Brutus for a job well done. Are you with me so far? So the people love Brutus and hate the big bad now dead Caesar. Or in this case, Donald Trump. Then, at Caesar's funeral, Mark Antony gives a short speech. And that's what I want to play for you in a second. Do we have that ready? Is that is that good to go? I want I want to explain one thing before we play it, but do we have it? Um, cool. So this is where Mark Antony says uh, Caesar was my friend, and he says, you know, Brutus says that Caesar was ambitious, and that's why he had to kill him. But every time Caesar won a battle, he used that money to fill the public treasury. That's doesn't seem like something an ambitious person would do. And whenever the poor cried, Caesar wept with them. 
An ambitious person wouldn't have that much empathy. That seems seems odd. Oh, and, and remember the three times, thrice is the word he uses. Remember the three times that we presented him the crown to be king? And Caesar turned it down each and every time. Remember that? Yeah, that doesn't seem like an ambitious man. Huh. And that's when Mark Anthony says that men have lost their reason. So I want to play this here. Again, it's two minutes. As I mentioned, try not to have a flashback back to ninth grade and and fall asleep here. Stay with it. You can. Uh, He starts off, Mark Anthony does here in the funeral oration. He starts off speaking bad about Caesar and, and speaking really highly of Brutus, right? He calls Brutus honorable and noble. But then he gets sarcastic, right? He keeps calling Brutus honorable and noble, but he does it with a more sarcastic tone. All right, here it is. Enjoy. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. The noble Brutus hath told you Caesar was ambitious. If it were so, it was a grievous fault, and grievously hath Caesar answered it. Here, under leave of Brutus and the rest, for Brutus is an honourable man, so are they all, all honourable men, come I to speak in Caesar's funeral. He was my friend, faithful and just to me. But Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honourable man. He hath brought many captives home to Rome, whose ransoms did the general coffers fill. Did this in Caesar seem ambitious? When that the poor have cried, Caesar hath wept. Ambition should be made of sterner stuff. Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honourable man. You all did see that on the Lupercal, I thrice presented him a kingly crown, which he did thrice refuse. Was this ambition? Yet Brutus says he was ambitious, and sure, he is an honourable man. I speak not to disprove what Brutus spoke, but here I am to speak what I do know. You all did love him once, not without cause. What cause withholds you then to mourn for him? O judgment, thou art fled to brutish beasts, and men have lost their reason. Bear with me. My heart is in the coffin there with Caesar. And I must pause till it come back to me. The quality of mercy. Let me stop there. Uh, so that's when the people of Rome start to question what they heard from Brutus. Like, well, hold on. This Mark Anthony guy's making a pretty good point here. Brutus said Caesar was, was ambitious, had to be killed. And then Mark Anthony's saying, well, or he's reminding us that maybe he wasn't really ambitious at all. And then Mark Anthony takes the cover off of Caesar's body and they can see how the people see how brutally 
he was murdered. And then Mark Antony reads Caesar's will, which says that if he dies, he leaves each Roman citizen 75 drachmas, which today would be like $20,000. Imagine. So at this point, the people turn on Brutus and the conspirators because they remember how much they really loved Caesar. So I have no idea how they handle this in the New York City Central Park version. I have no clue. But if they leave this part out, so, so the, the murder of Caesar is act three of a five-act play. The play ends with the two conspirators, the two main conspirators, killing themselves. Brutus kills himself because of the shame of what he did. So, I don't know. <laughs> uh, if, if, the, if the people who made this new Trump version of Caesar, Julius Caesar, if they end the play with Trump dying, and then let's call it, call it a play there, and then, oh, look, he's dead. Or maybe, I, I don't know, if they were true to the play, then at the end, everyone who goes who probably hate Trump, anyway, they would leave the play thinking, huh, maybe Trump isn't so bad after all. Maybe, maybe he's not a tyrant. Maybe if we did kill him, we would regret it. Maybe we think he's evil and we think he's dangerous and we think he's ambitious, but maybe the people who conspire against Trump are those things too. Maybe they're even worse. And maybe Trump, like Caesar, is a man to actually be admired. I, I don't know. That's the, that's the point of the original play. I don't know how they handle it with Trump there. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Slater Radio on Twitter. Mike Slater Show. The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. So check this out. Uh, Oxford in England. Because women are not getting as high of grades in the history department. Women will be allowed to take their tests home and take them at home. Now, I don't know if men will also be allowed to take them home or if men have to take them in the class and only women can take them home. I'm not sure. But either way... The, the, the premise behind it, right, is like women aren't getting as good of grades, so we're going to have take-home tests now. So the presumption here is that women have tiny brains. Unbelievable. So imagine if I, I don't have a daughter, but if I explain this to my daughter and she asks me, she says, Daddy, why do girls take their tests at home and boys take them at school? And I would say, well, honey, girls 
are stupider than boys. And there's a gender grade gap because girls are so stupid. So to try and close the gap, we let the stupid people take their tests from home where they can cheat. And that way you girls can get higher grades and be successful. Otherwise you wouldn't stand a chance as I pat her on the head. Go on now, go do your stupid girl things. What kind of, what, like, what other message could they possibly send with that? Now, the thing is, this actually hurts women more, this idea, right? Because women aren't getting high grades, so we're going to do something to make women get higher grades than they otherwise would. This hurts women. Because right now, if a woman came to me and, and with a, a resume and she graduated from Oxford, that's pretty awesome. That's quite admirable. Ad, admirable. But if in a few years, I didn't go to Oxford, obviously, but if in a few years, uh, a girl, a woman, gave me her resume and it says she graduated from Oxford... Mm. or I'll put it like this. Let's say a man and a woman both graduated from Oxford. They took the same classes, got the same grades. You're obviously going to conclude that the man earned his degree and the girl got to cheat or at least got special accommodations. Not because she had a disability, but because she was a woman. So why would you possibly hire the woman? This hurts women in the long run. But of course this assumes that we think there are such things as boys and girls and men and women and genders at all. Because you have people who are truly making the claim. There's a video of a biology professor at the University of Toronto, a biology professor, making the argument that there's no such thing as biological gender, which is interesting because if there's no such thing as gender, then how can you make special accommodations for different genders? See how they want it both ways there? They want there to be a gender pay gap, but then they also want there to be no such thing as gender. One last point here. Making tests easier for women. Why do people want things to be easier for them? I don't understand that. Let's just take the basketball game, uh, the NBA finals last week. If LeBron James got hurt in game one and the Warriors won every game, they swept every game, that would be an empty victory. Because they'd win, but there'd be a giant asterisk and everyone would be like, oh, but LeBron wasn't playing. Great competitors want their competition to be at full strength so that they can say they slayed the mighty LeBron in this case. If I was a woman in Oxford, I'd say, make the test harder for me. I'll prove to you double time that I'm qualified to be here and I'll be the smartest person in this classroom. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.